Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. My name is Erin Fries-Smith, and today I am with Karen Weitzberg. She is the author of a new book called We Do Not Have Borders, Greater Somalia and the Predicaments of Belonging in Kenya. It's been published by Ohio University Press just this year in 2017. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, So your book is extremely complex, but I have to say from the start, you've done such an excellent job of, of making it easier to understand. The issue of identity is so complicated and so, so diluted, but you've done a really good job of pulling it all together. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to start with uh, what is your personal background and how did you arrive at this topic? Yeah, well, I got interested in the history of Kenya and and East Africa as an undergraduate and got to travel to Nairobi for the first time as a graduate student um, and really fell in love with the city. And the the topic I really decided to focus on in graduate school, and it was partly out of a desire to look at aspects of Kenyan history that had been somewhat neglected. A lot of Kenyan historiography is really focused on central Kenya, and particularly the history of nationalism in Kenya is often quite focused on the Mau Mau Civil War. And other narratives um, and other histories have been neglected, and that's particularly the case with the Somali population, who Certainly, their their histories have been covered by some scholars, but they haven't been given as much attention. And I also was really interested in the question of border crossing. Um, And I found there were just so many interesting parallels between the lives and experiences and histories of the Kenyan Somali population and that of a lot of other communities that were of interest to me, ranging from the Kurds, uh, the Roma in Eastern Europe, the Palestinian community, Hispanic communities that cut across the U.S.-Mexican border. So I really felt that this, you know, the case, like examining the predicaments faced by Kenyan Somalis could help shed light on a much more global issue. Mm-hmm. 
It is certainly a very timely issue right now. And so, so upon what did you, did you start this research? Where was your starting point? My starting point was in the archives, but my book uh, really relies quite a bit on oral histories. Um, and in fact, one of the, the readers of the book who approved my manuscript for publication basically said that I was really more of an anthropologist than a historian. And I think in some respects that might be true mm-hmm. in that I rely quite a bit on oral testimony. And I did over 100 interviews in Kenya and also just had a lot of informal conversations with people that really inform my thinking in a lot of ways that are more difficult to cite directly. Mm -hmm. But then also dealing with the individual, how did you, how did you arrange these meetings? How did you sort of break down that, that trust barrier? Yeah. So I remember when I was on the airplane flying to Kenya to do my field work, I had a lot of anxiety because I was quite convinced that people would not want to speak to me, that people would think that I was a CIA agent and which some people did um, you know and there's a great and quite understandable amount of suspicion towards Americans in part because of just the long history of American interventionism in the region which has been frankly quite negative um, and quite destructive so you know I, I was sort of um, a little bit skeptical whether people would be willing to speak to me but I actually found that most people were, were quite generous in in terms of sharing aspects of their history with me, including quite painful memories. And I can't really entirely take credit for that. I had really wonderful research assistants at various stages of um, my research. So during the preliminary stages, um, people like Hassan Kochore and Hassan Ibrahim helped me a great deal. And then during really the, the bulk of my research, um, Two research assistants, Abdi Below Ibrahim and Ibrahim Abdi Karim, were just indispensable. So it was really, in large part, because due to their help, that um, I was able to be connected to people who were willing to sit down and and be really generous in terms of sharing their their lives with me. And I also really tried to, um, as much as possible, obviously I was always an outsider, but I really tried as much as possible to kind of escape the expat bubble. So when I was living in Nairobi, I I was living in Pangani. I was not living in neighborhoods where a lot of white expats live. I was really trying to integrate myself and trying to sort of forge my own social networks. Um, And that played a large role in in how I was able to get connected to people as well. Um, And I just found that having a lot of informal conversations with people over coffee, just chatting with people, not making, not always making things a formal recorded interview really helped to facilitate, um, you know, obviously you never break down that power dynamic, but helped to uh, lessen it to a certain degree. And how did you find, did you, were you able to find a diverse range of people or was there a, a certain type of person who was more apt to speak with you? Yeah, well, I, I focused most of my research on Nairobi and the town of Wajir, um, mm-hmm. in part because I wanted to trace, I was looking at kind of the question of transnational networks and I wanted to look at how ideas of Somaliness were constructed at different moments of time and also at different places. And Wajir and Nairobi, in some respects, are quite different. Wajir is in the north. It's a very marginalized part of Kenya. But part of what I showed is that in many ways, it 
it has its own traditions of cosmopolitanism mm-hmm. that um, make it somewhat similar to Nairobi, which itself is a very cosmopolitan, bustling capital filled with very diverse people. And, you know, for the most part, I was talking to older people. I was talking to people who could recall, in some cases, the late colonial period. Um, I, I certainly tried to get out a diverse uh, diverse amount of perspectives and a diverse amount of voices. Um, I did, however, confront the difficulty of um, it, it was more difficult to speak to women, women I found. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is actually true of many parts of the world where men are often the public face of the community and you often have to be more creative in talking to women. So Partly, I think this was a limitation of my own methodology, and as I went along, I got a lot better at talking to women, but I often found that I had to ask different kinds of questions and approach women in different ways, Um, and I think particularly as an outsider, um, a foreigner, it was often, I was often just directed to men, Um, so I really had to work hard to, in particular, to get at female voices. Mm -hmm. And what was the length of your research time there? I would say during the the bulk of my research, I was there for a year, but I did a lot of subsequent follow-up trips um, before the book was published after that that main period in 2010, 2011. So you were able to follow up with the same voices that you had heard from before? In some cases. Mm -hmm. And I also went back and did archival research as well, just to fill in gaps in Mm -hmm. in the story. Right. And do you feel like your your situation as an outsider, do you feel like it informed your research in a positive way, or do you feel in any way that it there was a, a lack of understanding, perhaps, that you weren't able to get to? Um, I am sure that there are a lot of things that I didn't understand. Um, and, you know, I think that I'm really curious to see what the response from the Somali community will be um, mm-hmm. to my work. And I certainly don't claim at any point that this is some kind of objective or definitive history. Um, But I did try very hard to look at diverse and heterodox perspectives to really examine, take my oral sources very seriously and read them alongside archival sources and to to just study the history carefully. So I hope that I've done justice to what I think is a very complex story, a complex and very, um, in many respects, politically sensitive history. Um, but you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ultimately the judge of whether I not or not I succeeded in that regard. Right. Well, and, and you are very upfront with that, which, which I, I appreciate enormously. You state in the introduction that not all Somali Kenyans would potentially agree with you and you recognize how complex and diverse the situation is on the ground, but yet you still did not shy away from trying to get that individual perspective, which I appreciate. Do you see, what do you think can be gained from this individual perspective? And why do you think it was important for you to look not just at the overarching political messages of nationalists, but but really dive into the individual perspective? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I was trying to do in the book was move beyond the, the state archives and move beyond um, the state epistemology of ethnicity. I think they're really, I think if one only looks at archival documents, there's a tendency to um, place too much emphasis, firstly, on the relationship between the state and the subjects, but also 
much of what the colonial state in Kenya did was to rule through ethnicity and rule through, in the case of the Somali population, clan, um, and to really try to confine their subjects to small localized areas. And when you speak to people, and I found this, um, you find that people are actually part of these much larger communities that stretch far beyond state borders. And so for me, talking to people and, and doing interviews with them was also a way of accessing these other forms of belonging, these other modes of, these other kinds of community communities that weren't very obvious um, if one just turns to archival documents. Mm-hmm. And and you, you track, because you track such a large period of time, colonial, post-colonial, through the present, um, the the idea of what it is to be Kenyan or what it is to be Somali-Kenyan or Somali shifts over time. Can you talk about how those shifts took place? Yeah. Um, you know, what it means to be Somali has obviously changed, you know, has been different at different moments of time and is also different at at the individual level. Um, so just much like if you ask someone what Americanness means to them, you would get different answers. And those answers would also change depending on the region that you're in or the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I really tried to show in the book um, was that being Somali was not irreconcilable with being Kenyan. Mm-hmm. And these two identities were not mutually exclusive. And certainly there have been moments in time in which both Somali and Kenyan politicians have constructed them as being distinct and different. Um, but particularly since really the, the start of the Somali Civil War, there's a growing desire on the part of many Somalis living in Kenya to be recognized as Kenyan, as full-fledged citizens, while still participating and still being a member of this, um, you know, larger, in, in many respects at this point, global Somali community. So um, sort of in, in terms of tracing the kind of evolution of Somaliness, I, I try to really keep that in mind that um, and really emphasize that, that, that being Kenyan and being Somali are not mutually exclusive identities. Mm-hmm. And was that something that that uh, differed in a more urban community versus a more rural community? Would there be? I don't want to necessarily say assimilation because mm-hmm. it's clearly not what's happening. But um, is is there a level of a desire to be more Kenyan or recognized as more Kenyan in a more urban area where where the groups are mixing more? Yeah, well, I was actually surprised to find that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, Certainly in the 1960s, there were a lot of people in northern Kenya, which is a very rural area, including actually many non-Somalis who um, subscribed to the pan-Somali project and who actually wanted to separate from northern Kenya and join this this vision of a greater Somali nation state. but really, by the time that I was doing my my research, um, even people in northern Kenya who were, in many cases, quite connected to quite connected to people in neighboring Ethiopia and Somalia, and who, in many cases, were quite politically and economically marginalized from the rest of Kenya, still in I think there was a strong and growing desire to be recognized as Kenyan. Um, and I think that's something that's not always recognized that, um, I think because people 
because there's often an assumption that the Somali language and the Somali culture is foreign, that people who, um, as you said, who don't appear to be quote-unquote assimilated, there's often an assumption that they're somehow disloyal or they somehow don't belong. But I think that that's really an assumption that needs to be fundamentally questioned. Mm-hmm. And I think you find that people find, have found over really over the decades have found various ways to be both Kenyan and Somali to varying degrees of success, I would say. Mm-hmm. And is there, is there any sort of leadership that is um, trying to co-opt this? I mean, it, the, the Kenyan government is, is clearly coming down on the side of division. But is there is there a, a leadership within the Somali community who's trying to reconcile this with with the Kenyan politics? Um, certainly, there are a lot of Somali MPs at this point, um, and, and particularly since the nineteen eighties, there have been quite a few Somali MPs who've been um, you know very close to the centers of power within Kenya. This, I think, the, the challenge is that that hasn't always meant that their constituents have necessarily benefited politically or economically. So definitely I think you see more and more of a co-opting of um, and, and participation of Somalis into the political infrastructure of Kenya, but um, I think many are still, many you know, ordinary people are still waiting to see what that will mean for them in the long term. And how do Kenyans see this community? Well, um, obviously it varies. And I think one of the things that's so remarkable about Kenya, and in many ways we can learn from Kenya, is that it has a long history of accommodating diversity and Mm -hmm. accommodating, really accommodating religious, linguistic, cultural diversity very successfully. But with that being said, um, unfortunately, Kenya has not been immune from many of the same xenophobic and anti-immigrant sentiments that plague much of the rest of the world. And in in many cases, that xenophobia often um, focuses in on the Somali population, in part because of the 1960s separatist movement, which really colored a lot of Kenyans' perceptions of Somalis who who came, came to be seen as being not fully loyal. And then this sense of Somalis as being disloyal and being foreigners was really exacerbated by the Somali civil war and the large influx of refugees in the late 80s and early 90s. And again, I don't think Kenya is particularly unique in this regard. I think in many parts of the world where you see a large influx of refugees, as we're seeing in many parts of Europe, there's often an increase in xenophobia. So unfortunately, um, because of this particular history, there is often this widespread perception that Somalis are dangerous. There's often they're they're often associated with terrorism. Mm-hmm. They're often seen as you know not fully belonging, which is um, unfortunate. Because again, if you look at the history of Kenya, there have been Somalis living in what is today Kenya since long before the borders were drawn, since long before the country was even established. And so, you know, one of the things that I hope my book illustrates is that, you know, the very idea of indigeneity and how we construct who is native and who is foreign is a product of very contested political histories. Um, And I think that that is true not just of Kenya, but really, you know, 
across the world when it comes to nation states. Um, so really taking that into account when we is quite critical, particularly at this moment in, in time. Mm-hmm. So, so what is the way forward? What is a way for them to reconcile this dual identity? I think that, um, you know, Somali and Northern Kenyan political thinkers are, are already doing that, and they're finding really creative means to stake out claims to political rights within Kenya while still participating in these larger transnational networks. Um, and I would say that... In many, you know, it's obviously difficult because of, again, this widespread xenophobia and also because of the large number of refugees Mm -hmm. and um, to some extent the difficulty that the Kenyan state has in terms of distinguishing citizens from refugees. But nevertheless, I think that um, Somali political thinkers and politicians are finding ways to make this possible. So... Um, I don't, you know, I think particularly at, at a time when, you know, the political situation in Somalia remains still a little bit unstable um, and a number of refugees remain in the country, the Kenyan government is, is going to have to reconcile itself to the fact that there are, that um, Somalis are part and parcel of, of the nation state. Mm-hmm so to speak. And and do do Somalis who have been there, because I think what's striking about this is that the, this group, this population that you're looking at has been there for so many generations. Mm-hmm. Um, they really do have a, a, a belonging to the land. But mm-hmm. how how is it complicated, or is it complicated within the Somali community, these, these newer refugees who are coming? Are they welcomed in by the Somali community who's been there for generations? Or where do they stand? I mean, much as you see with, um, you know, other communities that live across borders, I think there often are tensions between communities that have longer roots and communities that come in more recently. And so certainly, like like any other community, there are internal divisions and there are certainly divides that, you know, cut across, you know, fracture along a number of lines um, between people living in urban and rural areas, between people who um, are in certain respects at least perceived to be more assimilated into Kenya, so maybe they speak local dialects like Kikuyu and they speak Swahili and they live in urban areas versus people who live in northern Kenya um, who are perhaps much more marginalized from the centers of economic and political power. Um, So certainly tensions can emerge and tensions certainly can emerge between people who claim citizenship rights and more recent refugees um, because especially as people seek to assert their rights to, to political rights within Kenya um, sometimes they do that at the, you know, by distancing themselves from refugees. But I think I, I definitely overstate those tensions. I mean, they're certainly there, but I also think you see an enormous amount of cooperation and interaction between Kenyans who are Somali and more recent Somali refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, to a large extent, the way that so many Somalis in Somalia survived the civil war was by relying on kinship ties and religious ties with people in neighboring countries. Um, and in many cases actually circumvent 
implementing the formal refugee system and just relying upon their relationships with people across the border. Mm -hmm. So again, yes, these tensions are there, but I, I definitely wouldn't overstate them. Right. That's, that's really interesting. Uh, speaking about kinship ties, what are the ties or, or do you see ties? Um, Sorry, let me rephrase. Um, the Somali community that's within Kenya and have been there for a long time, they desire to stay within um, or with contact with the political structures in Somali or within Somalia. Or do they also have familial ties over those borders as well? Yeah, absolutely. But, and in many respects, I mean, much like a lot of um, Mexican-American activists talk about not the border having crossed them. I think in mm. very similar respects, the borders of Kenya cro- cut across communities and networks right. that in many respects long predate the nation state. And those re- networks remain relevant really throughout the colonial and post-colonial mm-hmm. period into today. So absolutely, people have a variety of different ties, religious, political, economic, mm. kin- you know, kin- kinship related to people living across the border. Um, and to a large extent, those networks are able to coexist uh, fairly successfully with the nation state. But then there are times when there there are conflicts. Sure, certainly around times of 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 fear and and fear of terrorism and things like that. I would think that as the border hardens, the less able they are to uh, maintain those kinship connections. Yeah, and there's certainly, I think. Um, modern political systems also can complicate things. So, for example, during elections, when the question of demographic demographic, mm-hmm. um, and numerical strength comes into play, that, that can often be a very contentious time. Because mm-hmm. if you have people crossing borders and potentially increasing population figures, and you can't always, you know, distinguish between who is and is not a citizen, that can have, you know, political implications particularly during times of election. So there are moments when the, the, the porousness of the borders become an issue. Mm-hmm. And do you see any Kenyan politicians who are trying to court this community or not really? Um, you know, certainly there are ways in which um, Somali politicians, you know, are increasingly, and, and in, again, particularly since the 1980s, have been... Um, co-opted into the political structure. But I think there's also, you know, definitely fear about the rise of Somali political power. I mean, we, we saw this particularly with the 2009 census, mm-hmm. um, which showed that the number of Somalis in the country had increased far more than people had anticipated. Um, and many of those results were eventually annulled by the Kenyan government um, against the wishes of a lot of Somali politicians. So there's certainly efforts to co-opt Somalis into the political system, but also fears about their, you know, growing demographic presence. Um, and there's constantly threats on the part of Kenyan gov- the Kenyan government to, for example, close down the Dadaab refugee camp and mm-hmm. deport refugees. And so it's, I would say the political situation has, has improved dramatically in the past couple decades, but you know, by no means do Somalis have full-fledged citizenship rights, I would say. Right. 
and and nor and they don't necessarily want they want full citizenship, but they also still want to maintain their ties. How how does uh, the Somali government see them? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm I'm certainly less informed, having never been to Somalia, um, and I certainly I do think that there's a desire on the part of small the Somali government to attract people from the diaspora back to Somalia, especially as um, the country has gotten a lot safer in recent mm-hmm. years. And I think that a lot of, um, for example, a lot of refugees in Kenya are sort of weighing their options and debating whether to stay in Kenya where um, they could potentially experience, where where they have experienced political repression um, and where they're they're constantly facing threats of deportation, but at the same time have often lived there for, in some cases, upwards of 20 years, or whether to return to Somalia in the hopes that um, this it will remain the safety, the kind of tenuous situation right now that will will continue and that the country will will become increasingly safer over the years. Mm-hmm. And if I could talk about where did you um, come up with your title, We Do Not Have Borders? Oh, that came directly from someone that I interviewed. Okay. Um, so a lot of what my book is about is exploring how Somalis imagine borderlessness, how they cross borders, and how really over the course of the, the 20th and 21st century, by participating in these networks and in many cases um, stretch you know, beyond the borders of the Kenyan state, they have um, really complicated both colonial and post-colonial ideas of indigeneity. So that is um, really a phrase that came directly from my oral histories. And I think it really speaks to these kind of alternative traditions of transnationalism that I'm really trying to highlight in the book. Mm-hmm. And Kenya was really founded on the ideas of transnationalism with Nkrumah and Pan-Africanism. Um, but where do you think, do you think that this is a future that could come up? Do you think that there's a possibility for a larger transnationalism within Africa? I mean, I think it's already, I mean, I think in many ways that this is part of what African history has to teach the rest of the world. Um, You know, there's this idea that African borders are somehow particularly arbitrary, which I don't think is quite accurate, um, because I think the idea of the arbitrary or artificial border is really predicated on a very idealized notion of the Western nation state, which is often the model by which African states are compared. So, for example, if you look at the Kenyan-Somali border, I don't necessarily think it's any more or less arbitrary than, say, the U.S.-Mexican border. But what you do see um, in many parts of Africa, I think, is a long history of challenging and calling into question borders and of African political thinkers, certainly not just Somalis, um, you mentioned Nkrumah, for example, actively trying to rework and reimagine territorial and political boundaries and work through possible alternatives. Um, And unfortunately, those haven't manifested themselves um, entirely insofar as most of the political boundaries established by colonial rule have remained intact. But I still think that you have these critical traditions at play and you have communities that really draw upon long histories 
to actively call into question and transgress boundaries. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from, particularly from migrant communities who, who do cross boundaries and who have been crossed by boundaries. Um, because I think, in, particularly at a time where we're seeing increased mobility worldwide, we really do have to take into account the fact that in many cases there are networks that long predate the, the state. In many cases, um, porous boundaries are in fact the norm and have been the norm far more than heavily securitized boundaries. Um, so I think there's really quite a bit that can be learned, not just from the, the Somali case study, but really from African history more broadly. Mm-hmm. And, and how, what do you think is missing from the conversation? Why do you think that these borders are hardening? Why do you think that um, we're not allowing these things to happen? Um, I mean, particularly in the case of um, uh, the United States and Mexico, when, when people would come back and forth, they would spend more money in the United States, they would leave the United States, they wouldn't be as reliant upon them. So now they're actually potentially more of a drain because they're stuck here. Is that something mm-hmm. that we're seeing? Well, of course, it's, it's something that we're seeing in other places as well. So, so what is the argument for these porous borders? And, and where is this fear coming from? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're seeing a really scary resurgence of nativism worldwide. We've, we're seeing that in the United States. Um, we're seeing it in, in the UK. We saw that most, most recently in Germany uh, with the recent elections mm-hmm. and some of the backlash against um, Angela Merkel's um, relatively more open approach to allowing in ref- you know, refugees, particularly from Syria. And so, you know, I find the resurgence of, of nativism in the Western world to be very scary and, and part of a much larger pattern that we've seen across the 20th century and today, um, where I think people, I mean, certainly we saw this during World War II, where, where communities that cross borders um, are often perceived to be somehow a threat or a polluting presence within the nation state. Um and so I think it's really important that we recognize the connections between border crossing and the rise of nativism and fear of the internal stranger. Um, but I think it's also important to recognize that, yes, we have very extreme examples of highly securitized borders, like, for example, the U.S.-Mexican border. But much of the world really has, you know, far more porous boundaries Um and there are countries in Africa, in the Middle East, that are taking in far more refugees than many parts of the Western world. Um, and Kenya, for example, has been hundreds of thousands of refugees. Um, so and while it's important to recognize that there, there is rising xenophobia in Kenya, at the same time, in many respects, they have a far more generous refugee policy than far wealthier Western countries. Um, so, you know, to, to go back to your question, I would just say that um, we shouldn't, while we should certainly, um, while, while I think we should be concerned about the rise of nativism in the West, I think we should also recognize that there are many cases of, of nation states that are able to accommodate these transnational networks and are able to accommodate migration much more successfully. And in a way, we can learn from these other 
examples and we can learn from countries like Kenya. But what, what is the assumption when, when, when the Kenyan government takes refugees? Is the assumption that they will stay or is the assumption that they, they are a temporary place, a safe place where then others will return back home? Well, to be honest, when the refugee crisis started in the late 80s, um, I think it just overwhelmed the Kenyan government. Mm -hmm. And it also overwhelmed the UNHCR. So I don't think there was really long-term planning. And no one really predicted, I think, that the Somali Civil War would turn out to be just as protracted and complex as it turned out to be. So, And I think I, I suspect that even amongst the refugees themselves who fled into Kenya, I doubt that many of them at the time really anticipated that they would be living in Kenya in some cases for the next two decades. So I think it has the refugee situations, they, they provoke a lot of questions. Um, firstly, they forced a lot of NGOs and organizations, I think, to reevaluate some of their approach approaches. So for example, there's, I think, growing skepticism about um, encampment and more of a willingness to accept urban resettlements of refugees and accept the fact that refugees are not going to necessarily stay in isolated refugee camps for decades. Um, so I think it, it has forced some changes within policy. Um, mm -hmm. But I also think that it, it does require governments to really think about you know, what it means for long-term understandings of citizenship when you do have these populations that are not necessarily going to be returning home in the near future. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a very interesting question. That, that, but I, I think the reason why I ask that is because I think that's part of the nativist line is that they, uh, in, in the United States, that they don't want to take too many refugees because the assumption is, is that they will stay forever. But if we can accept this idea of more porous borders and, and the idea that not everyone wants to stay necessarily, then perhaps um, we would be able to take more. Yeah, and I think if we can accept the fact that um, having porous boundaries and allowing people to move across them doesn't necessarily mean that the idea of the nation, I mean, the idea of the nation may change over time, but it doesn't mean that it loses its coherence mm -hmm. in any way. Well, so, so where are you going to go next with this research, or are you moving into something completely different? Well, um, as I think the, the subject of the book suggests, I'm really interested in the question of migration. And mm -hmm. I think particularly as climate change worsens, I think that we're going to see more and more migration. And, and the question of how people cross borders is going to be an, an ever more pressing issue. So I am planning on taking up this topic, but, but doing so in a, in a new direction. So my next project is actually going to be about the history of the ID card mm. and the passport and biometric registration. And it will also focus on Kenya, but using Kenya as a kind of case study for understanding broader patterns within the British Empire and the Anglo-Imperial world. So um, given the fact that biometric registration is becoming increasingly important and also to a large extent was really born in, in the empire and, and more specifically um, in countries like South Africa, um, I'm really interested in tracing this history. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to reading more about that. I think that will be really interesting. Thank um, you. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to, to leave us with? No, I think that's yeah. it. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank yeah. you so much for, for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you. So again, this has been uh, Karen Weitzberger. I'm so sorry. Uh, She has written the book, We Do Not Have Borders, Greater Somalia and the Predicaments of Belonging in Kenya, published just this year by Ohio University Press. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you.